0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of the stories we look at in this episode include the um, Christiane trial and his admission on the standard bribery and corruption in the mozambique Boat case. SEC whistleblower tips uh, go down for the first time. That. Jay Clayton, which ends up fake comments to support regulatory change. Ron Earth would the chairman of the SEC do so a former Keppel offshore lawyer uh, is sentenced to time served for FCPA violations. We for that. And why is punishing bribe takers equally important to punishing bribe payers? Matthew Stevens explains it all to us. His aggressive position in a well-submissioned of company in the SEC Enforcement Act, to consider. What is enforcement fatigue and how did Austin become it? About the Treasury Department bringing sanctions cases against shipping companies, why this is Take a look at the Avex Global 2020 Ethics and Compliance Survey. How m a can benefit from an independent assessment, and the implications of Gen Z on the workforce around risk compliance. All this and more on episode 101 of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 181, for the week-ending November 22, 2019, the fishy letters edition. As SEC Chairman Jay Clayton is reduced to having a PR firm create fake investor comments to support an SEC rule change, And the Astros scandal gets much worse. I worry that they may, Jay, Jay, that they may actually come and take away my replica World Series championship trophy. And perhaps you can give me some guidance on how to work through when your team is a cheater. But there's lots of other compliance and ethics stories. So you want to jump right into it.
1: Yeah, let's uh, take another look at an individual under a FCPA uh, investigation and what happens uh, when they try to work out a sentence. What's the f- news on the Bostani front?
0: So um, this, Jay, the trial is a fascinating case. Uh, this is the Mozambique tuna boat scandal where um, so this company, uh, Preventi, uh, ginned up uh, the country of Mozambique, floating $2 billion of bonds for infrastructure along the lines of um, increasing their tuna boat fleet. Of course, it was just an excuse to borrow money so it could be stolen. And Bustani uh, led this effort. Uh, There are uh, Swiss bankers uh, involved in this case who have already pled guilty from Credit Suisse and are testifying, or rather have testified in this case, but in a somewhat uh, interesting uh, defense tactic, uh, Bustani himself, Jean Bustani, took the stand, and it was just hilarious. Um, first of all, if you've engaged in bribery and corruption, and you get on the stand uh, and you admit you've engaged in bribery and corruption, you know, it just doesn't look good. And juries take a dim view of that. And we saw that in the Hoskins case, and now we're seeing it, I think, uh, in this case. Uh, Bustani was, was pretty open in admitting uh, he had paid bribes. Uh, he said the bribes were extorted, uh, from him, um, by starting with the president of Mozambique who demanded uh, 50 million chickens. So, um, you know, we have Charlie the tuna. I don't know uh, who are, uh, we have Pepe the frog. I don't know who the, uh, chicken character might be. Uh, um, Nevertheless, uh, Bustani understood that he, the president of Mozambique was not actually talking about chickens, but he was talking about bribe money. And um, Bustani uh, didn't pay the 50 million, but he did admit paying 8.5 million. So it's been a really interesting case unveiling uh, uh, really turning the, the tables on a lot of corruption that was going on in uh, Mozambique. Uh, the defense is still in its case. The prosecution is rested. So we'll have uh, hopefully closing arguments soon, and uh, perhaps we can report on a verdict at some point.
1: So uh, next up, we've got something coming to us from the uh, Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. SEC whistleblower tips decline as agency looks to limit big awards. Tips to the U.S. uh, securities regulator about corporate wrongdoing declined in fiscal 2019 for the first time since the program was established. Uh, This article comes to us from both uh, Kristen Broughton and Dylan Tokar over there. Uh, The SEC reported its annual decline in tips from corporate whistleblowers uh, as the agency prepares a proposal that could limit the size of future big awards. The SEC received 5,212 tips during the 2019 fiscal year, ending September, down 1% from a year earlier. This was the largest drop in tips uh, about potential cases of fraud and security offerings, which had spiked the previous year. The overall decline follows years of steady growth since the program was established by Congress after the financial crisis. Tips in 2018 jumped 18% from 2017. Under the SEC whistleblower program, tipsters are entitled to awards that can reach tens of millions of dollars. In March, the agency issued the third largest award, providing $50 million, in dola- $50 million to two whistleblowers who provided information in the case against J.P. Morgan Chase. The SEC could begin imposing limits on its largest awards under a proposal introduced last year that would give the agency discretion to scale back any award over $30 million. Whistleblower advocates and lawyers have criticized this proposal, saying it could discourage people from reporting information about corporate wrongdoing.
0: As I mentioned at the start of this uh, podcast, Jay Clayton uh, made a policy change awarding uh, to policy win to corporate executives. And as the reason for it, he pointed to a mailbag full of encouragement from ordinary Americans. Here, hear Clayton tell it, these folks are focused on the intricacies of corporate shareholder voting, and they wrote to him uh, asking if the rules about this be changed. Unfortunately, it turned out these were fraudulent letters, and that Clayton had in, in, uh, engaged a PR, someone had engaged a PR firm to generate letters. Uh, Bloomberg uh, wrote an article about it, Zach Midler and Ben Elgin Mitter, Zach Mitter, and uh, Ben Elgin wrote an article about it. and They actually contacted some of the people that Clayton cited to, and it turned out that they had never written these letters. That the letters they did acknowledge they were uh, there were signatures on the letters, but they never wrote the letters. So, um, pretty poor show when the uh, SEC chairman uh, does something like this. Uh, you might think he would go down and talk to his ethics office, Jay. Well, one might think that. Uh, He
1: didn't use a black sharpie and write it in really large block letters, so he would make sure to be able to say what the people said, did he? Uh,
0: That has not been reported, no. Okay.
1: Well, here's something we can report from uh, the founder of the FCPA blog, Richard Kassin, and uh, former Keppel lawyer sentenced to time served. The former lawyer at Keppel Offshore Marine, who helped the DOJ prosecute violations in Brazil, was sentenced on Friday to time served in probation. Uh, Jeffrey Sue Chow, 61, an American citizen born in New Orleans, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to violate the FCPA. As part of his plea deal, he agreed to help the DOJ prosecute the company and other former execs for the company for more than 25 years. Chow was sentenced Friday to one-year probation and fined $75,000. Uh, the judge said that the uh, probation would be served in Singapore, where Mr. Chow resides with his wife. In December of 2017, Keppel Offshore and its U.S. subsidiary agreed to pay total penalties for corruption charges and authorities in the United States and Brazil and Singapore. Keppel had admitted to paying $55 million in bribes. By no later than 2008, they realized that the company was overpaying an agent and by sometimes off by millions of dollars. Uh, He could have been sentenced Friday for up to 500 years in prison. Chow said during his plea hearing in federal court in Brooklyn that he should have refused to pay the bribes and he should have resigned. He told the court he is deeply sorry for his conduct. So, Tom, this uh, brings to cap uh, a case that's been going on a long time. Um, Any other thoughts in terms of uh, how this is going to affect individuals that can be prosecuted under FCPA law?
0: Well, it really shows uh, what benefits you can garner if you engage in extensive cooperation with the government. Now, the number of people who are going to be accused of and have participated in FCPA violations, it's going to be relatively small, but if you're one of those uh, unfortunate few, you really need to cooperate, uh, and if you do, uh, the carrot is out there for you to uh, to get off with uh, either no, no jail time or if you've served some time for various reasons, get off with time served. And, and I think this is probably warranted The cooperation given by the, uh, the lawyer in this case was extraordinarily helpful. It was a massive bribery case, uh, Petrobras, uh, you know, all the way stretching from Brazil to Singapore. So um, hopefully um, he will move on with his life. So, Tom, next up uh, we've
1: got Matthew Stevenson from his excellent global anti-corruption blog, uh, why don't you tell us what Matt is thinking about in terms of both the supply and the demand side of bribery?
0: Well, Jay, as as listeners on this podcast are are well aware, the FCPA focuses on the supply side of bribery. There's a a vocal minority who say that the FCPA is either not useful or, or rather even not needed uh, because it's not the U.S. companies' fault they're paying bribes. It's the individuals outside the United States, either through um, Extortion through the uh, culture of bribery and corruption, or simply um, lots of government touch points uh, with lots of people in their hands out. Um, you know, those people really don't want to try and fight the overall, uh, they don't want the U.S. to fight the overall scourge of bribery and corruption um, because the U.S. can't really impact cultures outside the United States. We can impact our culture, and that's really what the FCPA focuses on. And Matthew Stevenson. Uh, phrases it in terms of punishing individual wrongdoers is necessary to combat systemic corruption because without individual accountability, it's not possible to deter those who might be attempted to abuse their trusted power for private gain. But punishing individuals alone, it, he acknowledges, is not sufficient to combat systemic corruption. Uh, that's where organizations like the OECD, uh, the UN, and other international organizations uh, working to try to uh, address the root causes of corruption uh, come into play. So certainly, there's two coins or two sides to every bribe. There's a payer and a receiver. Here in the United States, we rarely can get to the receiver, although occasionally uh, that can happen if there's a money laundering claim and or jurisdiction uh, in the United States, or they can be extradited to the United States. But uh, it's necessary to combat those or, or prosecute those who pay as much to stop those payments. So always good to be reminded of that. And it's a very short for Matthew Stevenson blog post. And, of course, we link to it. So I e- encourage everyone to, to go over and uh, take a look at this. Jay, uh, we had, um, I thought, a really interesting article about Wells submissions in the NYU Compliant Enforcement blog. I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about what a Wells submission is and how uh, an aggressive position could actually hurt a company in an SEC enforcement action.
1: Sure. So this uh, uh, client alert comes to us from three attorneys at Simpson Thatcher, Stephen Cutler, Michael Osnato, Jr., and Kelsey E. Victory. uh, Excuse me, (laughs) Vickery. On November 4th, 2019, the SEC brought an enforcement action that has possible implications for the Wells process. This complaint filed by the Commission in SEC versus Bolton Security raises the question whether parties must consider reigning in their advocacy in Wells' submissions, lest such an advocacy be taken as proof that the potential respondents are unwilling to acknowledge wrongdoing or in common uh, enforcement parlance, that they don't get it. The underlying case involves a Massachusetts-based registered investment advisor, Bolton. While the case itself consists of a long line of conflict of interest enforcement actions against investment advisors, what is notable is the complaint's discussion about Bolton's well-submission. In short, the Commission criticized Bolton for failing in its advocacy to acknowledge the wrongfulness of its conduct and offering no assurances that it would amend its written policies and procedures so as to be reasonably designed to do so in the future. SEC practitioners have long understood that the well submission may be introduced as evidence in contesting proceedings. But the particular use and critique of Bolton's Wells submission would seem wholly at odds without, with the purpose of the Wells process. So we've got two kind of competing things here. Uh, when a Wells note, note comes out, uh, it gives the party a chance to uh, make their case. And they're basically saying, well, we want to hear from you. But if you hear from us, if we hear from you and you're not remorseful about what you've done, we're going to use against use this against you. So it seems to be uh, two competing uh, processes happening at the same time. Uh, Tom, anything else you want to look, bring up on this?
0: No, th- this just seems to put companies in a very difficult position, Jay. Uh, a Wells notice is designed to allow companies to respond, uh, but you can't be too aggressive in your defense. So uh, talk about, you know, Scylla and Charybdis uh, uh, in the modern world, this would seem uh, seem to be it. So uh, next up, Tom, on your side,
1: we need to hear a little bit about what is enforcement fatigue and how did Allstone overcome that? This again comes to us, a uh, second article today from Dylan Toker over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal.
0: Right. So uh, he wrote about a uh, Wall Street Journal and uh, Dow Jones Risk and Compliance Summit in New York earlier this week. And in it, Barbara uh, Petiti, a uh, compliance officer at um, Alstom, although based here in the United States, talked about the um, enforcement fatigue and and how Alston was able to overcome that as part of its journey to moving from uh, a culture of corruption, as demonstrated by Lawrence Hoskins in the culture he described, to one of compliance and doing business ethically. And she admitted it was it's been a long, hard row, and that uh, the only way that it has been done so is that top executives embrace the cultural shift for a more ethical business culture and. Um, Obviously, the enforcement action was an important part uh, of their journey, but they've taken steps to put a best practices program in place. And uh, although I'm not a big fan of ISO 3701, they have worked towards getting an ISO 3701 um, certification. And in doing so, they basically given uh, ISO the opportunity, to the auditor, to come in on a no knock basis and uh, interview executives. And in the corporate world, that's, that's pretty unheard of. So, um, But she said that uh, making management available to um, uh, ISO, the ISO auditor, uh, that really drove home the importance of the commitment that the company was making. And, uh, Jay, if there's really a company that um, had a culture that was uh, not based on compliance and ethics, I think we would have to agree that Alston was right up there on the list and for them to move towards this really shows uh the power of not only uh a robust enforcement program um we talked about a little bit uh, uh from Matthew Stevenson's articles but also how when a company does want to change they they can do so uh even if uh, the prior culture was was not what it needed to be.
1: So uh, another Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance uh, Journal article uh, coming to us from the same conference where uh, Alston just spoke. Uh, U.S. sanctions compliance weighs on non-financial companies. We definitely will link to Kristen Broughton's article in the show notes. Um, Global companies are investing more heavily in sanctions compliance, hiring staff and training existing employees as the U.S. expands its use of sanctions and trade restrictions to achieve foreign policy goals. One of the biggest shifts affecting compliance officers has been the expansion of U.S. sanctions to the non-financial sectors, such as shipping and manufacturing. Elizabeth Rosenberg, a sanctions policy advisor at the U.S. Treasury Department uh, during the Obama administration, said Tuesday during an interview at the New York Event hosted by the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones Risk and Compliance. She cited the lack of industry preparedness as one of the reasons behind the rise in shipping costs after the U.S. in September blacklisted dozens of oil tankers operated by a subsidiary of Costco Shipping Energy uh, Transportation, a major Chinese tanker in operator. In the financial services, people are accustomed to these sanctions, Ms. Rosenberg said. But when there are new measures that go at non financials, which is an express goal of this administration, for example, in the shipping industry and other manufacturing areas, that a new compliance challenge for that is a new compliance challenge for many industries who haven't seen this kind of measure handed out before. On the use of trade restrictions by the US to put pressure on China she sees, thinks that we will see more and more of these tools as well as more conflagration of the tools and the execution of us policies. So, so far we've seen Huawei put the, on that list. There's a number of artificial intelligence companies that have also been added. The U S could impose further sanctions if violent violence occurs in response to any demonstrations in Hong Kong. So, uh, again, this sounds like a, a pretty fascinating conference and, uh, I I think it's a pretty prescient article that we're just going to see more and more uses of non-financial sanctions, and we as uh, practitioners are going to have to deal with these.
0: Uh, Jay, uh, as you know, and our listeners are about to find out, we're going to have a special guest today from NAVEX Global uh, Lord Johnson, who's going to talk about the company's 2020 uh, benchmark survey and why compliance practitioners need to be a part of that survey. And really to tee that up, um, we've got a link to a NAVEX Global Ethics and Compliance blog, uh, Ethics and Compliance Matters blog article by David Banks, um, who uh, gives some of the highlights from the 2019 benchmark survey. Uh, This is really one of the great uh, resources in the compliance community. It is a survey, obviously, but it gives you a ton of information about not only what uh, best practices are, but how you can get there, so it's a great roadmap. Some of the key findings were that leadership buy-in correlates with program maturity and advancement. Technology correlates with leadership buy-in technological automation and leadership by and correlate with uh, program accomplishments. Um, the, David's article links to that survey, so if you want to see that. It also links to uh, uh, taking the 2020 survey, once again, Lauren Johnson and the later uh, segment is going to explain why it would be so helpful for the greater compliance community if you would take the time to uh, to do so. Uh, I cannot emphasize enough what a great resource it is, and I hope you will uh, help out not only uh, the, uh, yourself but the rest of the compliance community by uh, taking the 2020 survey so we can have as complete information uh, as we have uh, had in the past. Jay, you are still continuing your series over on CCI on independent monitors and the M&A process. So how does the mergers and acquisition process benefit from having an independent assessment? Well, I'm so
1: glad you asked, Tom. Uh, pop quiz. What's the best time to engage an independent monitor for an M&A process? The answer, as early as practicable. This week, I explore how an independent integrity monitor can benefit the entire M&A process. By engaging an independent monitor as early as possible, there can be preliminary discussions with senior management about the process, sometimes at the CEO level and at other times with the CFO. From these initial meetings, an independent monitor could be part of the acquirer's team assembled for the project. Most likely there would be a due diligence room with documents made available for the acquiring company to review under NDA, a non disclosure agreement. This could facilitate meetings with teams from one company meeting with their counterparts. M&A work is to some extent a fire drill. Everyone's working very hard to try to do a lot in a very short period of time. This means at times issues may arise which require companies to further negotiate the terms of an escrow or other risk management protection for the buyer. Over the last 15 years at Affiliated Monitors, we've participated in numerous proactive and independent monitoring engagements, and we found that people have an easier time opening up in those circumstances. They seem to be more forthcoming when somebody from outside their company comes in and asks questions in a non-threatening way. The independent monitor is just looking for facts, and we found that we can learn more information than we would otherwise get if we're not an independent third party. Uh, finally, we I'd like to address the gorilla that's in the room, and the question is usually on everybody's mind: Why should a company? What should a company do if an FCPA or other problem arises? despite robust pre-acquisition due diligence. Immediately, it's important to stop the illegal or even unethical conduct as soon as possible. This has become more important because of the recent addition of Safe Harbor for M&A to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. The Department of Justice certainly sees it as good practice to have a third party independent evolved on both the company side and the reporting side, if required. All of this lends credibility to your ethics and compliance program. If your company finds itself under scrutiny from an M&A transaction, you can take some comfort in the strategies outlined here. So uh, what I'd like to invite you to do is as we get close to the holidays, I'm going to close off this year with my uh, series on CCI, and I'm going to begin a special five-part podcast, rather um, blog post. And I'm going to be speaking with my colleague and the founder of Affiliated Monitors, Vindiciani. and he's going to share some reminiscences with us about the company he founded, how he was able to take his idea and convey using independent oversight monitoring and sharing some of the great monitoring successes and challenges that we've had over the next last 15 years. So that'll be starting next week on CCI.
0: Uh, That sounds like a great series. I'm greatly looking forward to uh, that, Jay. Uh, Jay, we both have daughters, and um, I don't think they're in Gen Z, but uh, the Gen Z uh, demographic is really hitting the workforce in some very big numbers. And so uh, one of the things I think a lot of people are thinking about is uh, not only how do you work with Gen Zers, but now that gen z's are some are in their mid uh, middle 30s they're really uh, moving to the uh, front line in risk management and there was a very interesting article by uh, gurav kapoor in cci on that topic and uh, he brought up some of the things uh, the attributes qualities and attitudes of gen zers that uh, people like us really need to think about but more importantly, how they're going to impact compliance programs, Uh, one of which is that they are uh, uh, digitally native. Um, They're not uh, uh, smartphones, are not devices, but a way of life, so that they are very comfortable with obtaining information uh, through uh, those sorts of uh, tools, and you need to figure out how to use them in your communication. Uh, second is value ethics and transparency. Studies have shown that uh, Gen Z is concerned primarily with working for organizations who, uh, whose ideals resonate with their own. They want to work for organizations they can be proud of. This J really moves past uh, having a compliance program to prevent uh, legal violations. Uh, it even moves past preventing a, uh, having a compliance program in place to prevent reputational damage. It it shows. Um, why your employee base is a key stakeholder of your compliance program. Obviously, the changing nature of work in terms of flexible, independent work, uh, the gig uh, economy, all of those things come into play, and then diversity. Uh, I'm not quite sure we focus as much on diversity as perhaps we should have, uh, but the article points out that Gen Z will be the most diverse workforce, uh, most diverse generation in the workforce ever, and that's uh, ethnicity, sexuality, uh, gender, um, and uh, a wide variety of other um, areas that perhaps people are not thinking about. So uh, Gen Z is not simply going to be the people you talk to. They're going to be the people under you, rather. They're going to be people you talk up to. So how are you going to utilize and adapt these traits to the front line of uh, risk management, a very thought-provoking article going forward? Jay, uh, we had an enforcement action earlier this uh, quarter, um, an FCPA enforcement action where there were trade sanction implications, and this uh, I thought uh, was very interesting. So this was the Quad Uh, Graphics case. I don't and we highlighted that case in this podcast and others I've been involved with. Um, (laughs) The company got into trouble for paying bribes in Peru for uh, judicial. Uh, rulings uh, in a tax court. But there was also a component that was trade-sanction-based, and that was uh, the company was shipping goods into Cuba in violation of the embargo on Cuba. And this is really the first time we had seen uh, the books and records part of the FCPA—this was an SEC enforcement action, not a DOJ—apply to trade sanctions. People forget, I think, or don't really think about— that the requirements of the books and records, which of course are um, the accounting provisions, uh, you have to have accurate books and records on your financial side, but also you have, have effective internal, internal controls. And here we had a requirement for effective internal controls for trade sanctions, yet brought uh, enforcement action brought under the FCPA. So it really drives home that you have to have effective internal controls for a wide variety of areas. It's not simply uh, just to uh, not pay bribes. So interesting uh, article, interesting use of that um, uh, strategy by the SEC. And uh, once you do it once, um, you know, prosecutors are are uh, uh, willing to go back to that. So uh, uh, check it out. We've uh, linked to it in the show notes. And Jay, um, next we're going to tee up a, a short segment where we uh, interview uh, Lauren Johnson, uh, so we'll cut to that, and the uh, any uh, uh, AMI or other related uh, thoughts coming up uh, either during the holiday week next week or uh, the week after. So we are pleased to have a very special guest with us today. We rarely have guests on This Week in FCPA, so it's always special when we have one. Uh, Lauren Johnson, Lauren, uh, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Tom.
0: So, Lauren was, is with Navex. Lauren, why don't you tell us uh, your current role with Navex?
2: Great. Uh, I'm a product marketer in our team at our headquarters in Lake Oswego, Oregon. I support our story through engagement with market, with the market and with uh, monitoring how risks, ethics, and compliance is presented and perceived around the world. And in global legislation. I've been in the market for about five years and I've been leading the industry, uh, leading benchmark development at uh, Navex Global for the last four years or so.
0: So, Lauren, one of the great resources that Navex puts out to the compliance community is its uh, benchmark survey. And uh, you've got uh, uh, one in preparation for 2020. And I know Jay had a couple of questions about that for you. So I'm going to turn it over to him. Great.
1: What is new in the 2020 benchmark survey, survey in uh, part two? What What is it, What
2: is important for our listeners to glean from this? Oh great, thanks Jay. Um, So every year we create a benchmark report to reflect back to the market overall trends and best practices and uh, showcase the best performing ethics risk and compliance programs. We do this not only to analyze trends but also to help our market better understand market regulatory expectations and best practices from among their peers. For 2020 we have created a single market survey to address long-term trends in the market toward program consolidation across risk management, policy, training, hotline, incident management, third-party risk management. As you know, the DOJ this year published an evaluation of corporate compliance programs in April, and it has specific recommendations about how it expects organizations to pursue risk ethics and compliance. And this benchmark report is aligned to those expectations as well as historical best practices that we've reported on uh, in previous reports. Accordingly, as our benchmark reports tend to reflect the evolution of our market, um, we are here to help risk and compliance professionals identify and understand market trends, get insights into program best practices, and develop data that allow organizations to compare themselves with peers. And this year, we're really looking for a lot more participants, so I think this opportunity to speak with you is a good way to get in front of some people to help them uh, get in contact with our, our report, our survey, and, and to be able to participate and, and have their voices heard. Great. And then how how long... Uh of
1: time should people put together uh, if they're going to participate in doing the benchmark? Uh, how long a uh, uh, process is this?
2: It shouldn't take more than 20 minutes. Uh, it's something that I think people can take on their lunch break, or maybe if they need a break from their desk, they can stand up and uh, do it somewhere else or, you know, just uh, be able to participate in a way that um, hopefully isn't too disruptive to their day.
0: So Lord, we're going to link to the survey on the show notes, but uh, could you just tell our listeners, how they could participate, where they might go to find out more information on it?
2: Sure. So this report where you have the survey at now, we're gonna be developing it in the early part of 2020 and have it published in May. Um, we will share the, the the data with people who do participate um, so they can they can use it the way they need to. Um, this is I think you know the biggest survey in the market for ethics compliance professionals. So For them and as well as for us, it's really instructional about what's happening. And, um, you know, the more people we have participating, the more accurate, the more uh, reflective of actual market trends it is. So we definitely want to have as many people as we can. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter of your job level, company size, industry, geography, doesn't matter at all. We still want to hear from you. So uh, anything we can do to, to get those people to participate, we'd be really appreciative. And it will help them get a better idea of what's happening in their market and put these findings into their own work to, to build bigger programs.
0: Lauren, I wanted to do, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with us. I uh, also wanted to thank uh, you and David, uh, really on behalf of the compliance community, to thank Navex for this survey. It truly is one of the great resources available to us. Last year's survey just had an incredible amount of information and I'm greatly looking forward to seeing what you guys uh, report for the market this year. So thank you.
2: Thank you, Tom. Thanks for allowing us to talk about it.
0: Jay, what does the Rosen family have in store for itself next week?
2: Uh, I think we're just going to
1: like look inward at the folks that we've had the opportunity to work with for the last year and uh, be thankful our, for our blessings. So uh, hopefully our staff will get some time off uh, during the week, uh, recharge, and uh, get ready to go into the uh, holiday shopping spirit on uh, Black Friday. How about yourself?
0: Uh, so I'm just thinking about, you know, there's only four Fridays left. Uh, Before uh, the big day. So, uh, you know, get out there and and, and shop, shop, shop Uh, online, uh, online, Black Friday in person, however you're going to do it, help that economy uh, go forward. So, uh, you want to take us home, Jay?
1: So, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA. Episode 181 for the week ending November 22nd, 2019, the Fishy Letters edition. Uh, Thanks for joining us and have a great weekend.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Don't forget to fill out the NAVEX Global 2020 Benchmark Survey. You'd be doing the compliance community a great service and also helping yourself out by garnering a great amount of information. Jay and I will be off next week, so our next uh, podcast of This Week in FCPA will be Friday, December 6th. I hope you will join us again at that time. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks again for listening.